In the market for investment-worthy bags, watches, and fine jewelry, Rebag is the answer. Rebag is a luxury resale platform where each piece is carefully inspected by experts to ensure quality and authenticity. Use Rebag to buy and sell finds from the world's top brands, including Louis Vuitton, Chanel, and Cartier. Head to Rebag.com and get up to 15% off your first purchase as a member with code REBAGNEW. Shop today at Rebag.com. That's R-E-B-A-G.com. And use promo code REBAGNEW for up to 15% off your first purchase as a member. Welcome back to Not Another True Crime Podcast. I'm Sarah Levine. Uh, lost Danny today, but I am joined by an amazing guest. She's an award-winning journalist, creator of the Murdoch Murders podcast, and the author of the new book, Blood on Their Hands, Murder, Corruption, and the Fall of the Murdoch Dynasty, Mandy Matney. Thank you so much for joining me today. Hi, Sarah. Thank you for having me. Yeah, I've been, um, of course, listened to the Murdoch Murders podcast reading the book, and I've been really enjoying it. It's been really eye-opening to read. And I'm really curious, like, what made you want to become a journalist? Because it seems like you were always kind of set on that path. Yeah. Um, it's funny that, like, growing up, writing was kind of the only thing that uh, – I felt like I was good at. I wasn't really great at sports. I wasn't really, uh, I was terrible at math. Uh, but writing was always the one thing that my teachers, like from a very early age, were like, you're pretty good at this. And I also just enjoyed journaling and things for therapy. And, uh, but I was always very interested in newspapers. I grew up reading the Kansas City Star with my dad and, um, in high school, I actually started working for my high school newspaper, and that kind of really like started the whole thing. I really loved it. Um, and then I started working for my college newspaper, the University of Daily Kansan, and I just like couldn't. It was something that I couldn't really shake. And um, journalism, like you fall in love with it, but it'll also break your heart. And That's for <laughs> sure. <laughs> Yeah. Um, but it, it was always something that, you know, was a big part of me that stuck with me. And I honestly wanted to not go down that path many, many times because journalism is hard. You majored in journalism, right? I actually just finished grad school for journalism, which oh, nice. almost feels Congratulations. worse. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> yeah, it's a well, it's one of those things where everybody tells you when you go into it that it's really hard and that the chances are not great and that there's no money in it. Yeah. <laughs> and um, <laughs> there's no future. So, you know, it's really great things to hear. <laughs> but you have to love it. And I, I do really love it. And college, I or in high school, the first story that I wrote was about a a guy who I knew who died in a car accident. And I remember that I remember just walking down the hallway of my high school and seeing all these people reading my story in the, the high school little newspaper. And I just really liked that feeling and stuck with it. I feel like that's so relatable, especially like when I was reading your book, you have this thing about how you don't do cold calls. You like don't like to just show up and knock on people's doors. And I was like, oh, my God finally. <laughs> like, can you talk about that philosophy? Because I, I really, I truly hate bothering people. <laughs> yes. Uh, I hate bothering people as well. And I hate being rude. Um, but 
old school journalism tactics, a lot of them are very rude and bothersome and like not polite and not considerate of others and also just like made for extroverts. And yes. <laughs> at the beginning of my career, and I'm not, um, I'm none of those things. So I was kind of lucky in the fact that I started my career in very small newspapers. Um, my first job was at a tiny newspaper in Waynesville, Missouri, where I was 22 and I was the editor of this tiny newspaper. And that was a crazy responsibility to have. But I was able to make my own rules because there's <laughs> nobody there to care. <laughs> and um, I just kind of did the things that I – the way that I wanted to. But I always felt – I mean, throughout my career too, I've gotten shamed for that. Like I've gotten people say, like, you're not a real journalist if you've never knocked on a door. And it's like, well, A, I think that that's dangerous. <laughs> Oh, for sure. Especially as a woman. Yeah. Right. As a woman. Yeah. Um, Like I, I know a lot of women who work in TV news particularly, and they have to go on these crazy assignments and lug lots of equipment and their bosses don't really care if it's dangerous or not. And I just don't, I, A, don't think that that's, necessary, but B, I think that we should just treat people better and not do any of those things. So I kind of made my own rules. (laughs) And I started um, like Facebook, social media was kind of on the rise when I got out of college. So I really just started instead of being like cold calling people, I would Facebook message them or Facebook message their friends and kind of like ease my way into it and ease my way into stories versus just being there to knock on the door. And um, like, I would never, if a journalist ever knocked on, I'd never answer my door ever. I don't know anybody who answers their door just like out of the blue. (laughs) Right. And if they are, that's kind of weird too. (laughs) (laughs) The other thing is like, what kind of story are you going to get from making somebody feel so uncomfortable to begin with? Like, I don't like to put people in a position where they feel like they have to talk to me. I've always kind of had the philosophy, like, if they don't want to talk to me, it's probably not going to be a great story anyways. So usually you don't have to do those cold calls or anything. I think that's all just unnecessary. Yeah, it's so I mean, it's refreshing to hear because I feel like particularly now journalism has such a bad rap you know, some legitimate, some not. And I really do enjoy that your book too, like goes into a lot of the problems that are plaguing journalism right now, like all the layoffs and the burnout and everything. Um, And we're even seeing this right now, just on a bigger media scale, like with last week, like Jezebel close and vice is laying people off. And what are your thoughts on just the landscape? It's scary. Um, And it's really sad. Uh, Those, media outlets that you're talking about, like um, Vice and BuzzFeed News and Mm -hmm. Jezebel, those were all like really up and coming when I was in college and getting out of college. And I remember looking at them as like the hope, this is the future. Mm -hmm. And now they are, uh, it's the future's not so bright over there. And it's very disheartening, but also I think a lot of these companies get too big too fast. Um, I think like we were saying, a lot of journalism rules that companies stick to are just unnecessary and waste a lot of people's time and resources. Um, Like 
if you uh, spend a day sending a reporter to knock on doors, that reporter could be doing other things better <laughs> with their time. <laughs> and I just think, I think A, uh, a lot of these companies got too big too fast. B, I think that you really have to have your niche in journalism. And I think that that's the future. I think smaller niche audiences. And I just think independent media is the future. So a lot of journalists who go by their name, not the company that they work for. People trust them because they trust their name, not the brand that's behind them. And I think that that is where there's hope. And hopefully my book is inspiring (laughs) to journalists because I did have a lot of rough times. And I I mean, I saw for myself how uh, in the newspaper industry, journalists were being treated and newspapers were being gutted. And I just saw very bad decisions play out before my eyes. And I was lucky to not only make the Murdoch Martyrs podcast with my husband, but from the success of that, we were able to start our media company. But we're building slowly because <laughs> um, I don't want to go. I think that that's one of the biggest mistakes that companies make. And we have two or three journalists on our staff. It depends on the time or whatever. But and it, pretty much everybody also at our company does consulting work instead of full-time employees because I think that especially with journalism, you want people to be like, do their jobs. And I don't care if they spend all day on it or spend 20 minutes on it, like just get the job done. (laughs) And we need to be efficient. And also, I don't want to like tie people down to one company. I think that like, if you work on our podcast, and if you get an opportunity to write for the New York Times too, go for it. Like, that's great. Totally. So those are my thoughts on journalism. Yeah. You know, you hear all sorts of stories about like the microaggressions and sexism and like other comments people deal with coming up. And I was a little, I mean, I don't know why I was surprised, but you know, you definitely experience that and it's all out there in your book. And have you gotten any comments from those people that you named? No, not uh, yet, but the book has not been out for very long. I struggled a lot writing my book as to well, like what issues do I focus on? Because um, there's just so much with this Murdoch story. And it's also probably going to be one of the most overwritten true crime or an oversaturated. Mm-hmm. Like there's, I, I can't even count the amount of documentaries there's already been. There's so many projects in the work probably over a dozen books at this point. And that's just now. So I wanted a different angle into it. And a big theme that me and my co-author, Carolyn Murnick, really were proud of and focused in on was sexism in the workplace. And not only sexism in the workplace, but sexism in society and how it creates a barrier for women constantly who are trying to do good things and trying really hard to, in my case, expose a system that was made for men and made by men. And it's just antiquated and old and it needs to be exposed and stopped. So that I'm really proud of talking about those things as hard as it was to do. It's just, it's uncomfortable for women to talk about sexism. And I think, again, in a lot of old school media, I feel like when I was in uh, working in newspapers, 
talking about sexism or anything would have just been like, uh, you're whining. And <laughs> I think that all of these women are realizing that it doesn't have to be that way. And we can all talk about sexism and call it out and share our experiences because that's important. Yeah. And one thing that I, I feel like I learned from the book that wasn't so talked about in other outlets was like the systemic issues where the Murdochs lived, like how not just this sexism system, but also like this racist system and how they're like two types of justice. So yeah, I, I just wanted to talk about that aspect of it as well. Yeah, um, that's been another huge theme that we I have seen for myself play out over and over again um, in South Carolina. And I say South Carolina and their justice system all the time. People are like, why are you only talking crap on the South Carolina justice system? It's like, that's what I know. Um, I'm from Kansas. I worked in Missouri and Illinois before moving to South Carolina. But South Carolina is the, the place where I've done the deep dives. And I've seen the most problems uh, within our justice system. And I I think my book really shows how uh, families like the Smiths are treated, families with no power or money are treated in a place like Hampton versus uh people like the Murdochs and it's just wrong. And I don't think that this is particularly unique to South Carolina. I think we have certain problems in South Carolina and it was kind of the problem just exploded with this Murdoch thing. But um, I think that this is a common theme across the American justice system. And I think unfortunately we've kind of stuck to the, like we have the best justice system in the world and end of story. That's not getting us anywhere. I think we need to recognize these problems, particularly, uh, how rules are, how the laws are designed for and by men and um, people of color and people without money and women are unfortunately often victimized by the system and run over and it's terrible. It's not fair. This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. When people read your book, is there a takeaway that you're hoping that they're going to get? or a few. <laughs> yeah, I hope that they get inspired. When I sat down to really figure out like why I was wanting to do a book, what I wanted it to be about, the mission was always, I want this to be the book that I wish I had 10 years ago when I started on my career in journalism. And kind of a, a roadmap um, to inspire not only women in journalism, but women to stick up for themselves at work and women who may feel a little lost. I was very lost um, before this whole Murdoch thing started in a lot of ways. And I was in my uh, later 20s and I was starting to like freak out of where's my career going? Where's my life going? I'm in bad relationships. I have a bad boss. I don't have all of these things, but I want people to realize that like eh, you can get past that and to be brave there's a lot of decisions in my life that I wrote about in this book that you could either be the brave one and do the scary thing or duck out and do nothing. And I want people to know um, that they can be brave and 
they can do it and it's never too late. I'm glad you brought that up because I know that there were a lot of moments. I mean, you're dealing with a very powerful family and exposing them and, you know, they didn't take that lying down, I suppose. Were there ever moments where you were scared and when you were like, maybe I shouldn't do this anymore and I shouldn't pursue this story? Oh, many. (laughs) (laughs) Many. Like even last week, I had a panic attack. I think it was just before um, my book was about to be released and all, but I started really like going down this horrific train of thought that was like, why it's only a matter of time before this comes back. Like these people are so powerful and they hate you so much. Um, what is going to happen? And I just started freaking out about that. But yes, immediately right off the bat, when I started investigating the Murdoch family in 2019, I started to get lots of emails that said things along the lines of be careful. This family is very powerful. And I don't think they were threats. I think people were just trying to warn me mm-hmm. and trying to say, uh, this this family is capable of a lot. Just look out. But getting so many of those emails over the year made me feel more and more uncomfortable. And then when the murders happened, it was like, oh, my gosh, this is absolutely insane. What, what have I gotten myself into, essentially? Um, but ultimately, the truth was the most important thing for me and doing the right thing was the most important thing for me. And I met so many people along the way who were victimized by this bad system. And that really just inspired me to keep going and no matter how scary it was. And another part that I love about the book is you meet a lot of the characters along the way who kind of joined in the fight with me and Several of us, I mean, we we joke about like being scared for our safety and things, but like, uh, <laughs> just, but it, that makes us feel better. Like dark humor. Um, but yeah. it was good. <laughs> yeah, it's terrifying. And like, haha, I got a new security system again because I'm terrified of, you know. But I met so many great people who made me feel less alone and made me uh, joined in the fight and then also made me feel like not crazy for being paranoid about things. And ultimately that made me stronger and kept me going. Totally. And I, you really like, I mean, saw this through from the very beginning until, you know, Alex's trial and conviction and sentencing and the trial was a lot. And I would love to get your thoughts on what that was like covering it. Like, were you surprised Alex took the stand? What were your impressions of that? Oh my gosh. Uh, (laughs) The trial was insane. I don't, I don't have anything in my life to compare it to. (laughs) I have no, I don't think a lot of journalists do. Um, It was just six weeks of absolute insanity. And I, I was talking to my co-host Liz about this the other day and we were just, the days were so long during the trial because we were watching the trial all day, writing a couple podcasts a week. I was writing stories for our website. And then at the end of pretty much every day, I would have a source call me to say like, I heard this on the stand. Let me tell you this about the Murdoch family, blah, blah, blah. And it was just an unbelievable exhausting marathon of a trial. And I don't know how the lawyers did it Um, (laughs) because I wasn't involved. But I 
was not at all surprised that Alex Murdoch took the stand. A lot of people were. Uh, it was like classic narcissist. Of course, he he's talked his way out of everything his entire life. Of course, he's going to take the stand next. And <laughs> I, I was surprised that the defense did not put up a, a good fight. Um, they had a lot of experts that were like, laughable they had a, a coroner who checked people's time of death by their the temperature of their armpits what? <laughs> they had, like they had just laughable and it's like is this really the multi-million dollar defense the like big the big guns of south carolina that all these people are afraid of this is the lawyering that we're seeing the uh, so that was like probably the only part that surprised me and then ultimately the jury coming back and with a guilty verdict so quickly surprised me. Yes, that was that was surprising. I remember that day. But how did it feel when they came back with the sentencing of like what, over 100 years in prison? Overwhelming. Just uh, a feeling of relief, like all of the work that so many of us have put in for so many years at this point. Um, this is it was a four year journey at that point. And I was just overwhelmed and really proud to take part in exposing someone so evil and happy that the system finally worked and people could have hope for a new system in South Carolina where somebody like Alex Murdoch could actually be convicted of murder. I think five years ago, no one would have ever considered in a million years a Murdoch being convicted of any crime in the low country. And to get the guilty verdict for the murders was absolutely insane. And I'll never forget it. Yeah. And you've been doing this reporting on the ground since the beginning. And you kind of mentioned how this story has gotten the documentary treatment like so many times over. Is there any common misconception that you see about this case or like something that people maybe don't realize? Oh, that's a good question. I could go on for a really long time about. Um, <laughs> I think something that is a big misconception is that Alex Murdoch um, was this great lawyer and that nobody saw this coming. Um, people acted like he lived this complete double life. And it, that's in the media a lot. They, they say things like um, his fall from grace. Alex Murdoch was never graceful. <laughs> he, like in 2019, when I started asking around this guy, I could not find anybody to say a good word about him. Everybody said he was sketchy. Everyone said they were scared of him. Everyone said they don't know what he's doing at his law firm, but he makes a ton of money and everybody's terrified of him. They, they said he's also an assistant solicitor and he uses that and he uses his badge all the time to get out of trouble. I heard the worst th things in the world about him. So people that act like, uh, oh, we were so surprised that Alex was stealing from all these people and um, was this horrible person. No. I mean, I think he put on a decent front. I think he did a good job of using his money and sway to convince people that he was an okay person because people have blinders on when they owe you, when uh, they owe you something. So he did favors for a lot of people and then people just kind of shut up and 
pushed the sketchy things that he did to the side. But uh, yeah, he was never graceful. He was never this amazing lawyer. Uh, he trust fund baby who inherited this law firm, <laughs> essentially, and this a solicitor position. Um, nothing great or spectacular about him besides I mean, he was pretty good about manipulating people, but they were in their most vulnerable moments. Um, and another misconception is, oh my gosh, uh, I don't think that there's, like right now, the big thing, Alex is appealing and he is claiming that the clerk of court, Becky Hill, tampered with the jury and his lawyers did a great job of winning the press over with that story. However, when you look at the actual evidence they've presented so far, there's absolutely nothing compelling that, and absolutely nothing worth uh, doing an entire new trial over. And I think that that narrative has just spun so wildly out of control. And I feel bad for Becky Hill because she has been in the crossfire of that. Yeah. Alex was never a great guy. And I think the other thing is just that like, I don't, there's a million things that people don't understand about the story. Um, <laughs> that's why they have to read your book. Yeah. At the, when we started investigating the boat crash, people hadn't really heard about the Murdochs that much. I don't, I think people think that they're, they were like the Kennedys of South Carolina. They really weren't. They were more like behind the scenes. They had a lot of political power. They knew all the police officers, but they weren't like making headlines before the boat crash. That makes sense. Yeah. I feel like things yeah, get lots like, of things. I could go on yeah. forever, but I won't. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Especially with a story as big as this, like, you know, people want it to be a very dramatic fall from grace type thing, like you said. Yeah. And I, that's another thing is that people, I think the most annoying thing is people over dramatize this and that they, and it doesn't have to be. Um, I had a, a tiny podcast done by me and my husband, and we got to number one on Apple within nine episodes because this story alone is so insane. Like, you don't have to exaggerate anything. You don't have to play anything up. Um, it's just an insane story, and the facts are plenty to get people interested. Right. And I'm sure, like, even if they're not the Kennedys, every town has... I mean, not to the degree of sketchiness, right. but like th yeah. there's powerful people in every town, even if they're not the mayor or something. Right, right. And I think a lot of people relate to that. Um, we've gotten a lot of emails over the past few years. that's like, we have the Smiths in this town and nothing is as crazy. But I mean, a lot of people relate to the good old boy system and the power that they have um, over several generations of people. Absolutely. And I'm, I'm sure you've been inundated with tips. And what are your next steps? Are you investigating any stories that you're allowed to tell us about? Uh, going to continue and really do another deep dive into the Stephen Smith case. That is a, the worst part about finishing my book was that there was no conclusion in that story. And that just breaks my heart for the Smith family. Um, so I really want to invest a lot of time in that. Alex Murdoch will go to trial as of right now at the end of November for the, his financial crimes involving the Satterfield family. I plan to cover that very extensively. And I really just want to, there's a lot of loose ends with the story. And that's another misconception that like everything tied up in a nice little 
bow <laughs> at the trial. Um, there's just so many unanswered questions that I need to go back on before I'm able to move on. Um, the book is called Blood on Their Hands because it's about the whole system and it's about lots of people enabling a monster and even in ways that they aren't aware that they were enabling them. So right now the goal is to continue to investigate the enablers and to push that they be held accountable to because it is wrong the amount of people in power who gave this man more power and enabled him and helped make this mess and they should be held accountable. Definitely. So we'll be keeping an eye out for that. And in the meantime, you guys should definitely check out Mandy's book, Blood on Their Hands. It's out now. Um, and you should follow her on social media. Do you want to throw your handles? Instagram, Mandy underscore Matney. My Twitter handle is at Mandy Matney and Facebook.com slash Mandy Matney Investigates. Amazing. Thank you so much for coming on the show. It was really great to talk to you. Thank you, Sarah. This was an awesome conversation. As always, thank you guys so much for listening. We'll be back next week. Not Another True Crime Podcast is produced by Jorge Morales-Pico, Sean Kilby, and Rebecca Sosmacat. Editing by Jorge Morales-Pico. Social media by Sarah Levine. Be sure to follow at Not Another True Crime on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook. And send all of your emails to natc at betches.com. Batches.